0: One of the great gifts of our practice, of the cultivation of mindfulness, is that some of our certainty about how it all is, falls away. Have you noticed that? That we don't know so much as we thought. And in its place, there can be, when we're in an open space of mind, a real sense of wonder real sense of awe at how it all is. We get attracted to that quality in others. I know I do. When I encounter someone that in a very sincere way is kind of, wow, pretty incredible, amazing this life, you know, I get less cynical in some way. It kind of, some of my veneer of thinking I knew how it all was drops away, it softens me. We do get drawn to it in people, when they have a sense of wonder about life. And we really love it when in some way we feel transported by a sense of awe. Some of you might have had that in recent times, been touched by a sense of the mystery of it all. Kind of had your shell broken through, you know? You might want to reflect on that for a moment. When we explore how it's possible, what makes it possible to wake up into a sense of how mysterious life is, we find that it comes at times that we're not particularly self-absorbed, we're not kind of circling around with our thoughts about who we are and who we should be and who we need to be and all that. There's a sense of receptivity our cup is somewhat empty. This is uh, from a Christian mystic. God, whose love and joy are present everywhere, can't come to visit you unless you aren't there. The you that's not there is that small self that's all collected with thoughts and feelings of importance and being threatened and so on we need to be empty some to be available another way to look at what it means to be available is when we really abide in what's been called don't know mind our beginner's mind we know about that it's that place of awareness where there's not a lot of assumptions about how it is. We don't listen and already have a big idea of what the other person's going to say and what it all means and how it fits in with our well-conceived reality. There's a sense of freshness, of encountering each moment in a really innocent, just as it is way, and really picking up or perceiving that experience in its newness, in its uniqueness. It's a childlike quality, in a way, that unencumbered mode of being. And yet it's something that's quite freeing for all of us when we're in it. It's a big trap for most of us to live in the kind of mindset that is very attached to a worldview and that constantly feeds it and elaborates on it and shifts it a little, but mostly tries to filter everything through it. This kind of airtight mental world. When we get honest and look at how we move through the day, we spend most of our moments off in thought. Isn't that true? (laughs) I do a lot. And when we're often thought we're one step removed from the aliveness and vitality and vividness of just here and now, it is a bit of a trap. When we're often thought we're not sensitive to the sounds of rain, we've been having these beautiful rains these last nights, beautiful sounds. It's hard to listen because we go off in thoughts a lot. We don't smell so much or see colors or feel our own moods or the moods of others. We disconnect from our own tender-heartedness when we're off in thoughts. So this is an important area of exploration, how living in the world of thoughts really keeps us small and removed. So I'll share with you a story. It's called The Three Fish, and this is by Rumi. This is a story of the lake and the three fish that were in it, one of them intelligent, another half intelligent, and the third stupid. Some fishermen came to the edge of the lake with their nets. The three fish saw them. The intelligent fish decided at once to leave to make the long, difficult trip to the ocean. He thought, I won't consult with these two on this. They will only weaken my resolve because they love this place, so they call it home. Their ignorance will keep them here. It's right to love your home place, but first ask, where is that really? The wise fish saw the men in their nets and said, I'm leaving. So the intelligent fish made its whole length a moving footprint. And like a deer, the dog's chase suffered greatly on its way, but finally made it to the edgeless safety of the sea. The half intelligent fish thought, my guide is gone. I ought to have gone with him, but I didn't. And now I've lost my chance to escape. I wish I'd gone with him. He mourns the absence of his guide for a while and then thinks, what can I do to save myself from these men and their nets, perhaps if I pretend to be already dead? I'll belly up on the surface and float like weeds float, just giving myself totally to the water, to die before I die, as Muhammad said to. So he did that. He bobbed up and down helpless within arm's reach of the fishermen. Look at this, the best and biggest fish is dead. One of the men lifted him by the tail, spat on him, and threw him up on the ground. He rolled over and over and slid secretly near the water and then back in. Meanwhile, the third fish, the dumb one, was agitatedly jumping about, trying to escape with his agility and cleverness. The net, of course, finally closed around him And as he lay in the terrible frying pan bed, he thought, if I get out of this, I'll never live again in the limits of a lake. Next time, the ocean. I'll make the infinite my home. It takes a lot of courage to make the infinite our home. It takes a tremendous willingness to pay attention, to see the lake, the limited space that we live in day after day. And yet we wouldn't come, we wouldn't um, bring ourselves to a spiritual path unless we intuited that we get hooked into smallness, and yet our nature longs for, and really truly is, a boundless kind of awareness. A way I find useful to look at it is that when we start paying attention we see that our mind continually projects out stories or thoughts onto the screen of awareness. It's continuously happening. And Our conditioning is to believe that world of thoughts, our interests, our analyzing, our reactivities, all around these movies that we're projecting, just like Hollywood, just a series of movies and thoughts and images and stories, and we get totally entranced and live in them and think they're the world. We mistake the movies of our mind for being the actual world. They're just that. They're sound bites, they're images. Then what happens is we really filter the world through these stories. The stories tell us who we think we should be, who we're not, who others are, who they're not to us, what's gonna go wrong, what we wish would go right. So we move with this swirl of stories around us trying to make not trying to navigate out of them. And the stories really get in the way of what happens with our relationship with ourselves in the world. We get very identified and attached in them. An example I keep encountering in working with people in therapy is I'll, I'll see couples come together and, and a very typical dynamic will be one person will complain that, let's say, she's changed, but he hasn't really gotten it that she's changed, and he's still treating her like she used to be, which drives her back into being like she used to be. You know, you get that one? (laughs) So he's still operating off an old story and hasn't paid close enough attention to the living reality that's changing before his eyes to pick it up, and yet it's happening, but his way of projecting helps to drive her into an old way. We don't see each other. We see our stories about each other. These stories and computations create a distance. We do computations about who has power, who likes who more, what somebody can offer to us, what we're gonna need to give to them to keep them interested. It's so amazing to think of almost anybody in your life. And you can do this now and sense all the stories that come up as you bring them to mind. Think of the stories that kind of swirl around as a buffer or as a distance between you and the actual perception and connection with who that being is. Waking up out of these stories occurs when we're with someone and we're in a place of such presence and care and interest that we're not often our thoughts. We're just simply perceiving and connecting with what's there. As an exercise, it's a beautiful thing to do, to bring someone to mind and consciously let go of any ideas about that person and just in some very deep, heartfelt way, just behold them. It's a beautiful meditation. So we get small and disconnected because of our stories about each other, and then we do it to ourselves big time. How many people have had that experience of having some failure in the past, perhaps to do with relationships or work or whatever, and then because of the fear that we're going to repeat it actually repeat it. (laughs) That's the most common pattern in the world and it's all because we're believing in the story and unable to be fresh in this moment. Our stories are based on wants and fears and what happens is instead of dropping into the reality of the wanting and the fearing, and just simply being with that, we go off into the world of thoughts to try to control what's going to happen or fix what's going to happen. Thoughts are our zone to try to control things because we're afraid to be in our bodies that are changing, that can experience pain, that can die, that aren't under control. So what happens when we begin to meditate is we have the intention to connect more in an immediate way with aliveness. And we begin to see just how hard it is to let go of this incredibly thick and to us real world of thoughts. On Saturday, one friend from this Sangha told me that there were a lot of interesting and creative thoughts going on, and why not sometimes be in them and sometimes not? And when I suggested, just for the day, seeing what it was like to just keep on letting go and just being with a more immediate sensory experience, he went ahead and took on the challenge. And when we checked in, reported that it was exciting but scary because control is not there. We have the illusion of being in control when we can edit and censor and direct our thoughts in certain directions. And we can get entertained and fascinated and sometimes plan things so bad things might not happen or fantasize good things happening. There's an illusion of control, but there's no such thing when moment to moment we stay with the life in our bodies. No sense of control. So our practice, rather than staying lost in the movies of our mind, is to turn the awareness back on the projector, to look at from whence it's coming, to see movies as movies, and sense the emotions that are under them and the sensations that are there with mindfulness. Our practice is to bring a caring attention to what's happening, but not be lost in the story. Now, this isn't a doing, this is a being. There'll be still a lot of activity. There'll still be stories and emotions and thoughts and feelings, but there's a stillness in the awareness that's present with them, but not lost in them. That creates a certain quality of stillness. When the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answer or any solution, neither resisting or avoiding, it is only then that there can be a regeneration, that something new is born, because it is only then that the mind is capable of perceiving that which is true, and it is the truth that liberates, not our efforts to be free. It's from not doing. It's from resting in awareness and simply touching and being with what's here just this moment. Thinking can be useful, but it's not the source of true creativity. It's not the source of true wisdom. The only way we can truly know about something is to experience it in an immediate and direct way. Thinking about it is a snapshot. It's a still, frozen photo of thought, of images, of sounds, but it can't capture the living, moving, alive reality of things. The Buddha said that people that get attached to their views just go around bothering each other. So our challenge is how to open to the truth of the moment without playing out this addiction to using our thinking process as our primary and most important means. And this is not to say that thoughts are not valuable and a necessary and beautiful part of being human, but they're vastly overrated. (laughs) Some of you know this one, that there's a student that was asking a Zen monk Well, what happens after you die? And the Zen monk finally said, look, I just don't know. So the student said, but I thought you were a Zen monk. And he said, I am, but not a dead one. (laughs) We can't find the truth through our thinking. We can't discover what love really is, what the nature of existence is, What's interesting is that the inquiry through science actually points us right back to the mystery. It really intensifies our awe. I love reading about the latest developments in um, quantum physics and in natural sciences, what has been discovered, because each time it becomes clearer and clearer how much is just absolutely unknowable and awesome and amazing. I'll I'll mention a few that have come to mind recently that I really like. One is something that many of us know about and have known for a long time, which is that any observation made in quantum physics cannot, the results of that observation can't be separated from the mind of the observer. There's always an interaction of the one who's looking and what's seen, and there's no way to separate them out. Mind creates what's going on. Another, some of you might have read about this week, that um, the Hubble's beginning to detect light from some of the stars that were forming right at the beginning, after the Big Bang, just several billion years after it, just that. And this is light that's been um, going through space now for billions and billions of years. And so we're beginning to see the actual appearance of the early formation of stars in the universe. And yet we still have no idea. Let's say it did happen with the Big Bang. We don't know what happened before that. We don't know whether the universe is going to continue expanding forever and ever or whether it's going to eventually collapse back in on itself. That's one of the big questions now. The way they're trying to figure it out is if we knew how much matter was in the universe, we'd know whether there was too little and therefore it would keep expanding out or too much and it would collapse in on itself. But unfortunately, 90% of the matter we know has to be in the universe, we can't detect yet. 90% It's dark matter. Here's another. Scientists have discovered that atoms, when they're cooled sufficiently to get quite still, radically shift in their nature. And rather than being a discernible, independent atom, they merge to become kind of a communed super atom, that in stillness, there's union. How's that for mystic? <laughs> so science just points us back, when we really get to the heart of it, right to the mystery, to the what's unknown. There's no concept our words, that can illuminate the meaning of timelessness, there's no way to describe it in words. Our infinity, our consciousness, just as there's no, really no thoughts that can do justice to love, our thoughts are just a dim reflection of the radiance of love. This is Pablo Neruda. When did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their water? What are the tortoise's thoughts? What is the song of the roms? Where do birds go to die? Repetitions and why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. What we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. We're afraid of the uncertainty and we stay busy trying to create a lot of answers. Recognizing don't know mind, recognizing how little we know, is a death to our small self. Our egos, our sense of self, is organized around our thoughts. When we let go of, don't rely on, don't live out of, those thoughts, it's truly a letting go of our whole sense of being in a familiar way. We resist that, even if our thoughts and our sense of self are unpleasant, which they really are a lot, we'd rather that than being plunged into the chaos of not knowing. we will do anything to avoid that sense of the death of what's known. You know, the one definition of death, Patrick Henry's second choice, right? <laughs> I know that one's it's a little weird. <laughs> I couldn't resist it, though. <laughs> For some people, living in a world where there's not a regular, easy access to thinking to frame it and make it okay, feels pretty much like insanity. There's certainly people at retreats that say, well, when I started really letting go of thinking, I felt like I was going crazy. Opening to life under thoughts can be intense, but not freeing if we become lost in or identified with the swirling waves of emotions and sensations underneath. So it's quite interesting that so many creative geniuses were considered to be manic depressants, that they were not trapped in habitual modes of thinking, that they had access to a tremendous amount of aliveness and perceptual acuity and creativity, and yet we're bashed around by those waves of experience. This is Virginia Woolf. As an experience, madness is terrific, I can assure you, and not to be sniffed at, and in its lava I still find most of the things I write about. Byron, Tennyson, Schumann, William and Henry James, Melville, Coleridge, Hemingway, Van Gogh and many, many more, known and unknown. This is Byron. He says, we of the craft are all crazy. So much creativity when we drop under the world of thoughts and really have access to that seething, uncontrolled, ever-changing movement of life, and yet so much suffering for so many. This is Socrates. Madness, provided it comes as the gift of heaven, is the channel by which we receive the greatest blessings. We value the creativity and the aliveness, and yet we fear the suffering of madness. How does it become a blessing? How do we say yes and drop into that world that's not bound by thinking and yet find a sense of balance? That's our challenge, really, to keep opening to life, to open to what's there, but not get caught in it, identified with it, lost in it. For me, the image of an ocean with waves has always been one of the most valuable in sensing that if we try to stay aloof from the waves and say, oh, not me, don't want to get caught in them, we've basically shut down and died. We've been like that fish that went belly up. And yet there's also that danger of getting drowned by the waves, that we don't have the quality of attentiveness, of balance, to uh, do what Swami Satchitananda described. He said, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf, remember? We don't know how to surf. So our practice really is to develop the spaciousness in mind and the balance and awareness that we can bring a caring attention and really open to those waves without getting lost in them, without forgetting our nature as the ocean. That's the trick, to keep remembering, and that's mindfulness, the fullness of who we are as we open to the different waves that can feel so uncontrolled and dangerous and intense and vivid and alive. How to stay open. What we discover when we do let go into that ocean of experience is several things. We discover that it's always changing. It's called a nika. ever-changing, moving experience. When you stop being in the static world of thought forms, it's just a moving dance of sensations, sounds, emotions, images, that everything goes. Everything, there's nothing we can hold on to. That last Saturday's day-long retreat is history and the summer is gone. And very soon, the 20th century will be gone. Just as gone as the times of Cleopatra and the times of the dinosaurs, it all goes like quicksand between our fingers. You sense that when you drop out of thoughts, which try to keep things eternal. It's all changing and going. And you sense that it's all reappearing and being created, that this whole world is constantly being generated. New leaves, new growth, new animals, new species. Species get extinct, new creatures adapt. It's an amazingly rich world. So we discover Anika when we drop into the mystery of things, how it's all changing. We discover that it's incredibly vivid When we're in our thoughts, life is only partly alive feeling. When we get into our bodies and our senses, there really is a brightness and a vitality and a freshness. When we drop out of our thoughts and into this sense of aliveness, we discover really a sense of our own nature, of who we really are. When we let go, we discover an abiding awareness that's present and that cares. We touch our nature as an awakening, compassionate awareness. We discover a sense of relatedness. We can experience the movement and changing phenomena that arise and fall away, condition each other. A thought conditions a feeling, a behavior we have affects another person, the observer affects what's being observed. We sense we're part of this web of life absolutely interdependent, absolutely belonging, absolutely connected. I read you a story that was um, in A Path with Heart. And it's about a hospice director and his experience of interconnectedness as he sat with the children of a dying 65-year-old man outside his room. They had just received news that their father's younger brother had been killed in a car accident and were struggling with whether or not to tell him. Their father was close to death and fearing it would upset him, they decided not to speak of it. As they entered the room, he looked up and said, don't you have something to tell me? They wondered what he could mean. Why didn't you tell me that my brother died? Astonished, they asked how he had found out. Oh, I've been talking with him for the past half hour, said their father, who then called them to his bedside. He spoke some last words to each child and in 10 minutes rested his head back and died. We love feeling, connection, and belonging, and yet we absolutely struggle to maintain our sense of being separate, our familiar sense of an isolated, separate self. It takes tremendous courage to let go into the mystery. There's a Van Morrison song, and that's the title, Let Go Into the Mystery. And yet, really, that's our path in practice to keep letting go and letting go and letting go of all the ways our mind contracts around what's familiar, to touch what's really here in a direct way. Rumi writes, Do you think I know what I'm doing? That for one breath or half breath I belong to myself? As much as a pen knows what it's writing, or the ball can guess where it's going next we're not in charge, it's happening. And the experience of it happening can be one of wonder and amazement. One Tibetan tradition describes our presence with what's happening as being one of perpetual astonishment, amazement. When we stop holding our role as doer, as the one trying to avoid things or make things happen. We open in a way that can be enormously appreciative. There is one book, The Universe is a Green Dragon, and describes the evolution of our consciousness as the part of the universe that has the capacity to appreciate itself. In other words, we are the universe appreciating our own unfolding. That's our capacity to really behold with wonder, with love, with appreciation this life of which we are an expression. It's serendipity, it's grace when, for whatever reason, this amazing world stops us in our tracks, when our thoughts drop away, and there's like this, whoa, incredible. That's serendipity. I share with you one experience, because it was so recent, and it had to do with fish, so I thought I'd tell you. The night after our day-long sitting here, this is last Saturday night, I went out for dinner with my son and his dad, at a, to a Chinese restaurant, and we were, we were very late and they were closing down, but we, we had a really nice dinner. So as we were leaving, we went by this fish tank, and my son pointed, and there was one fish that had one eye, and it was, had this big, huge eye. And my son just was like, I, I was awed. He was astonished at this one eyed this huge monster-eyed fish. And then all, there was about four young Chinese guys that were cleaning up there and they all came over and they were incredibly cheerful and excited and they told us this story about how when they first got this fish, it was this little black fish and it had two eyes and it got into the aquarium and within a day or two got into a big fight with another one of the fish and its eye was gouged out. And two weeks after that it turned gold and this eye just kept growing and growing, the remaining eye, till it like stuck way out of its body. It could see anywhere, you know. It <laughs> and these guys were telling us the story and they kept giggling and laughing because they just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And it was, what was really beautiful was that we were, we were all there, the waiters and my son and myself, just all of us kind of in our shared amazement, really together in that. It really unites us. There's a line in a poem that it goes, the eros of shared impermanence. We're all here together in this awesome, mysterious happening. (laughs) There's not a whole lot else to say except for somehow we're waking up in it, we care, and we're perceiving more and more about it but in a very direct, living way. A downside, perhaps, of aging is that we numb out and have less and less capacity, many people, to feel amazed. We don't register it as much. We mostly go around with our well-worn explanations and interpretations of how it all is. So I really love it when kids go around and say, awesome, just because they think it's awesome. And that reminds me that it really is awesome, or wow, or cool. You know how younger people have those expressions? Here's a story some of you have heard that I love. This was a woman asked uh, Maurice Sendak to share some of his favorite comments from readers that he had gotten over the years. This is the Ch- children's illustrator, some of you know of. He responds, oh, there's so many. Can I give you just one that I really like? It was from a little boy. He sent me a charming card with a little drawing. I loved it. I answer all my children's letters, sometimes very hastily, but this one I lingered over. I sent him a postcard, and I drew a picture of a wild thing on it. I wrote, Dear Jim, I loved your card. Then I got a letter back from his mother, and she said, Jim loved your card so much he ate it. That, to me, was one of the highest compliments I'd ever received. (laughs) He didn't care that it was an original drawing or anything. He saw it. He loved it. He ate it. (laughs) So our practice of meditation is a practice of waking up to just this moment in all its mystery, in all its awesomeness. And it comes from being very here and now. Just that. We don't have to go anywhere or look anywhere for the beauty, the love, the mystery that we so much cherish. It's right here now. And our training is to come back to that again and again. This poem is called Bow, Golden Retrievals. Fetch? Balls and sticks engage my attention seconds at a time. Catch? I don't think so. Bunny, tumbling leaf, a squirrel who's, oh joy, actually scared. Sniff the wind, then I'm off again. Muck, pond, ditch, residue of any thrillingly dead thing. And you? Either you're sunk in the past, half our walk, thinking of what you can never bring back, or else you're off in some fog concerning tomorrow. Is that what it's called? My work? to unsnare time's warp and woof, (laughs) retrieving my haze-headed friend, you. This shining bark, a Zen master's bronzy gong, calls you here entirely now. Bow wow, bow wow, bow wow. (laughs) So when we get to stop our busy minds, It's more fun. There's a lot to be cheered by, pleased by. Some of you know this. Living, I don't know why. Dying, I don't know when. Going, I don't know where. I'm amazed I'm so cheerful. (laughs) It's freedom though. And that's really the heart of the path. It's freedom to really live it to really experience what we're here to experience, to not let our moments pass by as we're off somewhere else thinking about it. It's really to live the vitality of this moment with all our hearts, with all our minds, and really touch the mystery that's here. So I'd like to invite you for a moment to sit up, and we're gonna just listen to a little guided meditation that has to do with appreciating just that. So please close your eyes and listen.
1: Well